Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. It seems we may have come into some money. What is our episode, Donna? Today we're discussing three days of the condo. The air date was November 18th, 1981. Written by Lisa Levin. Story editor, Lisa Levin. Executive story consultants, Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. Producers, Blake Hunter and PJ Tarakvi as Peter Tarakvi. Directed by Linda Day. When Johnny comes into a large amount of money, everyone at the station is curious to see what he will do with it. After deciding to invest in a condo, he desperately tries to get out of the deal. This episode illustrates a regular storytelling progression you find in a lot of long-term sitcoms. Writers get bored with the primary situation. It's been happening going back to I Love Lucy. Lucy would have never been at the candy conveyor belt if the writers hadn't wanted to get her out of the house. We eventually started going to work with Archie Bunker and to his favorite bar. The gang on taxi started to leave the taxi stand regularly. They'd be in each other's homes and elsewhere. Once the characters are established, it's fun to take them on the road. Jerry Seinfeld started going to Florida regularly to visit the parents. Even Cheers, who had arguably the greatest situation you could ever find in a situation comedy, they got bored with it. In later seasons, they would often leave the bar. In this episode, we start out in the station, but quickly adjourn to Johnny's new condo. Most of the episode happens in the condo with a capper back at the station. We never even go into the control room in this one. We hear what's on the air, but that's it. This is one of those episodes where the business of radio takes a backseat compared to the fun of putting these characters in new situations. The title of this one, Three Days of the Condo, is a play on the title of the 1975 movie, Three Days of the Condor. It's a political thriller directed by Sidney Pollack and starring Robert Redford as a being-framed and on-the-run CIA analyst codenamed Condor. It's based on the 1974 novel by James Grady. Grady's original book was called Six Days of the Condor. Condor's original plight was shortened for the movie due to both time and budgetary constraints. There's a fun tie to WKRP here. Richard Sanders was in the movie Three Days of the Condor. The credit shows up on his IMDb profile as uncredited in the part of Sarge. Uncredited listings on IMDb usually come from either the performer or the production company. 
We start out in the bullpen where Venus is helping Johnny go through his mail. All right, we have four stacks of mail here. Right. We can hear Rockin' My Life Away by Jerry Lee Lewis playing in the background. As Venus picks up a stack of mail, we see Les rush past them, holding yellow tear sheets in his hand. He runs out the door that leads to the studio hallway. Venus tells Johnny the first stack is junk mail. They can just toss it. Although I would like to know how your name got on a mailing list for full-figured women. I don't know. I swear. Venus tosses the stack into the trash can. Herb quickly rolls his chair to the trash can. He hilariously grabs his desk with both hands <laughs> to pull himself over to retrieve the mailer about full-figured women. Over the monitor, we hear the killer. It's Jerry Lee Lewis singing Rockin' My Life Away. This is the second time we've heard this one on Johnny's show. He played it during the season two episode, Baby, If You've Ever Wondered. That's the episode about the book. For complete info on the tune, check out that episode of the podcast. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a sky blue nylon shirt with dark blue horizontal lines across the chest. We've seen this shirt before. The horizontal lines get smaller in width and further apart. As they go down his chest, I like to call it the Doppler shirt. He is wearing dark blue sweatpants and a sky blue headband around his head. This is the first time that I've seen Venus wearing something that just doesn't quite work. Headbands are tough to pull off. We've seen Andy, he can't pull off headbands in past episodes. Venus, as stylin' as he is, can't really make it work either. Venus picks up the next stack of mail. This is Johnny's personal mail. He holds out an envelope and says it's from a California law firm. Johnny takes the letter from Venus, scans it quickly, then drops it into the trash can. Next. <laughs> Venus asks Johnny if he's going to open the letter. Johnny tells him no. Venus asks if he can open it. Sure, but first tell me what's in this pot. Ah. These are bills that should be paid at once. Your water, your heat, uh, your light, phone, car payment. Car payment? Yeah. Can I see them? Venus hands the envelope to Johnny. He looks at it, then turns to Venus. I don't own a car. So did Johnny get rid of his car? Blake Hunter mentions in America's Favorite Radio Station how he started to assemble a character book for the show. Having a book filled with character details became a common practice later, but at the time, sitcoms didn't track past claims made by characters. Mentions of family or home life might happen without any reference back to them later. George Costanza mentioned early on in Seinfeld he had a brother. Twice. When we finally meet his parents, George is an only child. Blake didn't start to assemble the WKRP character book until into the second season. We think this is why a lot of the first season character claims are forgotten later in the series. In Goodbye, Johnny, we get a specific mention about Johnny's car. Hey, I think I saw Johnny's car in the lot. He's not here yet. Okay, it was a couple of years ago. Maybe he sold it. Although, when you take into consideration Johnny's cash flow and bill-paying habits, it's possible it was repossessed. Johnny points to the last pile. What's in the stack here? <laughs> These are letters from people who would like to know why the bills in this pile have not been paid yet. <laughs> Gotta go. 
Oh, Johnny points at the monitor on the wall. He tells Venus he has to go. Johnny jumps up and runs out the door, headed for the studio. Monitoring what's on the air the way Johnny did was very common in a radio station with live announcers. Not having the station on in every room is what's weird. This does make us wonder where Les was running off to earlier in the scene. He was headed to the studio with his tear sheets, but there was a song playing, and Johnny still had to go on. You know how something you see all the time becomes almost invisible until it's gone? We had that sensation with this cold open. Something was missing. Normally, in the space behind Johnny's head above the bookshelf, we'd be seeing the Blondie Gold record for Parallel Lines. This is the one given to the show because Blondie believed WKRP helped push the record to number one. The Real Gold record debuted on the air in Jennifer's Home for Christmas. It was first placed on the set during the shooting of Les's groupie. Now it's gone. There's not even an outline or a hook to show where it was hanging. Fear not, fellow babies, the gold record does return. Weirdly, in just a couple of scenes. Maybe they sent it out for polishing? I'm wondering if it's like the Stanley Cup. Everybody gets to take it home for the night. And somebody forgot to bring it back, maybe. <laughs> we did that with a flying squirrel in elementary school. Yeah, yeah. Everybody gets to take, take your pet. squirrel home. Sure. <laughs> Herb walks over to Venus. Wasting time trying to straighten that guy out. <laughs> I know. Venus continues flipping through Johnny's mail. We hear Johnny's voice coming out over the monitor. He made it to the studio before the song ran out. Yeah, that was the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, rocking my life away, and that's what I'm doing. I'm the doctor, and this is KRP, where it's 936 in Cincinnati. I'm just sitting up here reading all my fan mail. I see that some of you were nice enough to write twice. (laughs) You know, I am touched. I always have been. Music till 10, right after this. Land, the only thing worth fighting for, the only thing worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. This one is going to come back several times throughout the show. The music being used in the background of the Gone with the Wind Estates commercial is Tara's theme. Tara's theme was a prominent and well-known musical number from the Gone with the Wind soundtrack. Although there were specific musical themes for various characters and for specific love affairs in the soundtrack, none was ever a hit. The one piece of music to be remembered is the one written to the house. Tara was the sprawling plantation where Scarlet grew up and would return after the war. The score was written by Max Steiner. It was the longest he'd ever written at 2 hours and 36 minutes. 99 different distinct musical pieces are contained in the score. Here at Gone with the Wind Estates, we understand that. It's condominium living, plantation style. (laughs) Man, some announcer is working hard on this ad. As the ad plays, Venus is taking the letter from the California law firm out of the trash. He starts to read it. Venus walks over and turns the monitor off. As he reads, but I was really enjoying the guy doing the Gone with the Wind Estates commercial. (laughs) We see Venus flip through the pages of the letter. As he reads, you can tell he's a little shocked. He pulls out what looks to be a check. 
Excitedly, he runs to the door leading to the studio hallway. Before Venus can make it to the door, Johnny comes walking in. What the hell, you know, I don't need a phone. I mean, Alexander Graham Bell never had one. You know, I, I just invent him, he said. I don't use him. Venus holds the check in front of Johnny's face, telling him to look. Well, this is a mistake. This is a cruel joke. No joke, my friend. That's 24,000 smackaroonies. <laughs> Johnny looks at Venus. I could have a hundred phones. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can call long business and I have to wait till after six. <laughs> In this era of unlimited anytime minutes, it's hard to remember the days when long distance was expensive and rare. Venus mentioned calling after six. Do you remember that? You oh, remember, I do. I do you remember do. why you did it? Not a lot of people knew why they were doing it. In the early 1960s, phone companies introduced direct dial long distance. Before direct dial, every long distance phone call had to go through an operator and usually multiple operators in order to be connected. Operator assisted long distance calls took a long time to connect and they were very pricey. So not many long distance calls were even made. With the advent of direct dial in the early 1960s, Anybody could dial a long-distance number and be connected automatically. No operator involved. More calls could be connected and the price of long-distance calls went down. Since more people could afford long-distance, more people were calling. The long-distance trunks would be jammed constantly. AT&T got concerned when business clients complained. Business clients used long-distance extensively throughout the workday. Businesses would also pay a premium for the service, if they could get the call to connect. AT&T decided to max out the returns on those daytime calls. They made those minutes expensive. Businesses would pay, but consumers complained. To keep everybody happy, AT&T went to a tiered pricing structure for long distance. They based it on when you called. Personal calling outside of regular business hours after 6 or 7 p.m. meant lower rates on long distance. The system worked pretty well. Keeping the daytime pricey meant businesses were able to connect more calls at a higher return for Ma Bell. Discounting in the evening meant personal users got a better deal. And they weren't tying up the lines during the day when businesses wanted to use them. These days, long distance still exists, but cellular and internet calling have created some weird situations. A VoIP call to Beijing from Chicago is a tiny fraction of the cost of calling from Chicago to a rural town in Iowa over a landline. Johnny grabs Venus by his jacket collar. I can go through the operator. I don't have to dial myself. That's right. <laughs> Venus, Venus, tell me, what do I do? You're my financial advisor. Come on. Johnny's shaking Venus forward and backward in desperation. Just take your hands away from my shirt ever so gently. <laughs> right. Then take a deep breath. <laughs> Johnny takes a deep breath. Right. Now sit down. Right. Venus pulls out the chair behind the DJ's desk, but Johnny just plops down on the floor at Venus's feet. What would Johnny's settlement be in today's dollars? Johnny got his windfall during a period of excessive inflation. Actually, March of 2022 just hit the same level of inflation as what they were experiencing back in 81 and 82. Even with inflation, Johnny is sitting on a pile of money that would equal about 
$71,000 in buying power in 2022. As Johnny figures out what he's going to do with his pile of cash, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back to Mr. Carlson's office where Mr. Carlson is blowing off some steam to Jennifer. Jennifer is looking through fabric samples. She is redecorating the lobby, remember? Mr. Carlson is wearing a baseball glove and has a baseball in his other hand. It's an outrage, Jennifer. I know it is. The Cincinnati Reds had the best record in baseball, the very best. I know they did. Mr. Carlson is pacing as he talks, throwing the baseball into his glove with some force. Not the Dodgers, not the Astros, but the Reds. We've got to stop talking about that someday. What else is there to talk about? Art is making a very topical reference, and we can feel his pain. This episode is airing in November of 1981, so it was shooting in October during the baseball playoffs and World Series. Now, the 1981 baseball season was a weird one. It was divided into two halves by a strike that lasted about six weeks. It started in mid-June, and it went to the end of July. The decision was made that the teams leading their division at the end of play in June before the strike, then again at the end of the season, would go on into postseason play. Ask any Reds fan about 1981, and they'll tell you Cincinnati got robbed. At the end of the first half of the season, the Dodgers were in first in the NL West. Not the Dodgers. Cincinnati was in second a mere half game back. At the end of the second half of the season, Houston was in first. Not the Astros. This time, Cincinnati was only one and a half games back. Here's where the robbery happens. If you ignore the two halves of the season and track one loss records for the entire year, Cincinnati was well ahead with the best record. Looking at the entire season, the Dodgers were four games back and Houston was six games behind the Reds. Cincinnati fans were livid all that winter. But Jennifer's right. We've got to stop talking about that someday. So what else is there to talk about? Johnny Fever has come into a great deal of money. Mr. Carlson looks at Jennifer. That soft drink machine break again. <laughs> okay, what soft drink machine? If they've got one somewhere in the Flynn building, it's new. Once again, we've got an instance where those first season writers are totally ignored. In Preacher, the final episode of season one, you remember how radio preacher and professional wrestler little Ed Pembroke was known for jamming rivals' heads through soda machines. Venus brought it up. I saw him throw Haystack Calhoun out of the ring once. Haystack weighed about 500 pounds at the time. The lead stuck his head through a soda pop machine. And Art was pretty worried about it before their meeting. You think he's really going to stick our heads in a soda pop machine? We don't have one. Maybe they were lying to protect themselves, but while little Ed was in Art's office, he even checked. The little Ed's got to stay calm. Oh, yeah, be calm. The little Ed's got to stay cool. Now, hallelujah, be cool. Praise the Lord. <laughs> got a soda pop machine around here. No, there's not one in the whole building. Jennifer says not quite to the soda machine comment. She she then explains to Mr. Carlson how Johnny came into so much money. When Johnny was fired from that radio station in Los Angeles, he still had a year left to go on his contract. Huh. Yesterday, he received word that the station has settled out of court, apparently saying booger on the air is not grounds for firing someone. <laughs> Mr. Carlson asks Jennifer how much Johnny got. 
she tells him $24,000. Good golly. Fever with money. Mr. Carlson is looking a bit nervous. He sees the problems with this. <laughs> the door to Art's office opens, and a young, bleached blonde woman walks in. She looks a bit dazed as she checks out Art's office. Carlson asks if he could be of some assistance. No, I'm just hanging out, just checking out things. <laughs> Art does a nervous little giggle. He's not quite sure what to do when we hear Johnny. Nadine. Honey, is that you? <laughs> Johnny appears behind Nadine, and he does this little wiggle dance. Yeah, this might be a Steve Martin move, referencing 1979's The Jerk a movie Howard Hessman was also in. And you and I were talking about it. It also looks a little like when Steve would do that wild, wild and, and crazy, crazy guys. Guy. Yes. A big thanks to WKRP cast listener Glenn Stone for pointing out a missed song right here. Johnny is actually singing a line from a 1964 Chuck Berry tune called Nadine. Check it out. Nadine. Honey, is that you? <laughs> oh, Nadine. Great catch, Glenn. So Johnny looks absurd. He's wearing leather pants with a matching leather jacket and a shiny gray hat with a black felt band around it. He's got his black death t-shirt on under the leather jacket. He puts an arm around Nadine. Oh, AC, uh, Jennifer, uh, permit me to introduce Nadine Piawati, so help me, that is her name. <laughs> Nadine is being played by Marianne Furman Barrett as Marianne Furman. We couldn't find much on Marianne. She has one other credit aside from WKRP. She had a very small role in a 1979 movie called Human Experiments. And I'm sorry, if you're going to list a title like Human Experiments, you know we're going to be clicking that link. There's a trailer, and the two minutes and 41 seconds of the trailer is about all you'll want to see of that movie. <laughs> it's as tawdry and shocking and bad as the title implies. What happened to Rachel Foster was the ultimate fear. Human experiments. It began as a venture and became a nightmare of unrelenting terror. After her movie experience, maybe Marianne decided to look into something other than acting. Seriously, the trailer was almost disturbing. <laughs> I wished I hadn't have watched it. <laughs> experiments. So a pretty brunette walks up behind Johnny, then comes up and puts her arm through his. This is Nadine's personal physician, Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> What has Johnny been doing in the last 24 hours? Oh, you don't want to know. Oh, my goodness. So Johnny motions towards Art and Jennifer. Doc, meet the folks. <laughs> what, like you mean your parents? No, 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 no. No, no, no. Now, that's a funny line. But even funnier are the reaction shots. Carlson's head tilts and his eyes harden and, and he's kind of jerking his head. Jennifer's eyes go wide and she gets almost a panicked look. Meet the folks. 
So Johnny apologizes to Art and Jennifer, explaining he was just given a little tour of the station, you know. Like when the Cub Scouts came by, remember? Yeah, these are not Cub Scouts. Roberta, the personal physician, is being played by Denise McKenna. Denise seems to be a dancer who does some acting and directing. Denise had, if not a profitable, at least a busy career. Dancer and choreographer, nine acting credits, and got her master's in directing in 1990. Her master's project seems to have been a short called The Blue Men, which she produced, directed, and wrote. In her bio, Blue Men is listed as award-winning. But... We don't know what award. She didn't (laughs) specify those. We just saw award winning. After about 1993, Denise's credits sort of just run out. (laughs) Okay. I, I have an observation about Johnny in these upcoming scenes. You remember the American Tourister commercial where they put the luggage in the cage with, with the, the gorilla, gorilla yes. and the gorilla kept diving on the luggage and whipping it around. And then he'd run over and he'd grab it again and whip it around. Johnny has the energy of that gorilla in these <laughs> next scenes. He is out of control and flying all over the place. It is so much fun to watch him. Re- I just wonder how much was ad lib. And really, so much of this fourth season, there has been so much great Howard Hessman stuff. Yes. It's like Johnny is on fire throughout they, this like fourth season. Like they tell season. him, you know, Howard, take it and run and with it. And go with it, man. Mm-hmm. Just take it. And he hits it out of the park. Here comes one of my favorites. Johnny asks Nadine and Roberta to wait out in the lobby, which brings us to... The line of the episode. I'll join you shortly. Into one big lady. <laughs> <laughs> not get much laughter from the audience. I think it went over their their heads or they didn't hear it or something. It is so but stupid, but join you so later into one big la- It's hilarious. But then his ha-ha at the end punctuates it. So, so, so Johnny turns to face Art and Jennifer. He's got a wrinkled brown paper bag in one hand. He's tossing it around as he talks to them, and it sounds like it has broken glass in it. There is all kinds of stuff in this bag. Really, my behavior is just inexcusable, AC, and uh, uh, there's only so much of this stuff that you have to take. Johnny reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a stack of bills. I think it's appropriate that I just uh, dock myself, uh, say, $100, okay? (laughs) He just peels one off, hands it to Art. Art takes the money, confused. Johnny asks him, if it's not enough, he hands him another $100 bill. (laughs) Johnny tells Mr. Carlson they're now square. Mr. Carlson hands the money back to Johnny, telling him to keep it. I understand you have good reason to celebrate. Are you kidding? I certainly do. As Johnny says this, he tucks the two $100 bills into Carlson's vest, then tickles Jennifer under the chin. Jennifer is not amused. She goes to sit on the couch. I have just concluded a lengthy legal action to the tune of $56,000. From which my lawyer has taken his fair share of 51%. All lawyers must be shot soon. (laughs) William Shakespeare. Johnny tells Jennifer and Mr. Carlson that leaves him with (laughs) $24,000. It is so funny. These clips that we're playing have a lot of words in them, and because we've got them written out in front of us, but... They're so short. 
because he is talking they so go by. fast. Jennifer, $24,000. Uh, Nadine, the doctor, and I are finalizing our marriage plans. But if you were willing to just uh, merely wink in my direction, I guarantee you I would consider canceling the whole thing. <laughs> so Johnny is paraphrasing Shakespeare. In his play, Henry VI, a character makes the statement, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. It's spoken by a guy named Dick the Butcher, who is a follower of a bandit named Jack Cade. Cade believes he can be king. Cade goes on in a long monologue about the perfect world that he'll create. Well, in order to have a perfect world, this is where Dick chimes in with the famous line. In the ensuing centuries, the lawyers have tried in true lawyer-like fashion <laughs> to twist this quote around to a positive. They claim Dick says it because the best way to overthrow the government is to eliminate those who truly uphold the law and might truly stand in the way of one as lawless as Cade. What a load of lawyer hockey. <laughs> Not even close. Shakespeare wrote it and Dick said it for the same reason you want it embroidered on a pillow. All lawyers must be shot soon. Do we have any lawyer listeners out there? <laughs> I think we do. I think we do. And apologies, but you guys know. You know about it. I, many of them have wall hangings with that quote in their homes and offices. <laughs> After Johnny's wink offer, Jennifer smiles over at Carlson. She stands up from the couch and walks over to Johnny. And again, in just the <laughs> manic energy of this episode, here comes Lonnie Anderson stepping up to the plate. In a great move, she poses with her chest out. She makes a Marilyn Monroe pout and winks. She really gets into it, jerking her face toward Johnny. <laughs> Johnny grabs at his heart and falls onto the couch. Oh, oh, that was good. This is incredible. I didn't think it could be like that. Was it good for you? Would you care for a cigarette? <laughs> Just Howard Hessman going crazy. Art is watching from his desk chair in disbelief <laughs> at Johnny's behavior. Johnny, stack of hundreds still clasped in his hand, and again, all in leather, continues to talk, waving the money around. Talking entirely too fast here. Many, many words a minute, you know, and yet I'm dizzy. I'm about to pass out. I tell you, money is murder, AC. They say it'll kill you, but they don't say when. You know, I haven't been to sleep. Not since 10 a.m. yesterday morning. No sleep at all. I, I'm just dizzy, dizzy, dizzy. And that's not really all there is to it. I... <laughs> Johnny looks at Jennifer sitting next to him on the couch. Promise me you'll wait for me. <laughs> and Johnny collapses, his head falling right into Jennifer's lap. My, my. Yes, well, well put. Yeah. And he is down for the count. Howard Hessman is hilariously manic in these scenes. In the past 24 hours, Johnny's gotten a hold of either some speed or cocaine. <laughs> Whatever had him wound up, it's over now. He's, He's catching out. a quick and much-needed nap on Jennifer's lap. Promise me you'll wait for me. In this scene, Johnny is wearing his famous Black Death malt liquor t-shirt. We first saw this shirt in the first season episode, Contest Nobody Could Win. Underground San Francisco artist Dave Sheridan designed the Black Death t-shirt for his good friend Howard Hessman. Recently, 
we've noticed it looking decidedly blue or kind of a bluish purple. We figured Black Death would be on black fabric. Comparing it here to Johnny's black leather, you can really see the blue. Checking back to the contest episode, the original fabric seemed like it was a little darker that first time we saw it, but still, there was a very bluish-purple tint to it. Retail versions of the shirt that you can buy now are sold on black fabric. We're still watching, but as far as we can tell, there is no actual malt liquor called Black Death. Now, your Black Death t-shirt is black, Is black. Correct? It is on okay. black, yes. And all the ones that I see, a lot of guys post them on the Facebook page when they get their new Black Death t-shirt, and they are very definitely black. But you can really see here, Johnny's has a blue tint mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, yeah. We transition to the bullpen where Venus is talking with Johnny. Johnny is still in his leather outfit. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing jeans with a dark red kimono-looking shirt that has puffy sleeves with tight cuffs around each wrist. It has a V-neck with buttons down his chest that stop at his waist. He has a silver cloth belt with tassels on the ends. There's a shiny gold chain around his neck. A thousand bucks? How could you spend a thousand bucks in one day? Well, Nadine needed braces and Roberta, the doctor, uh, she wanted to have a tattoo removed. I've seen it. I don't blame her. Johnny looks across the room. We see Bailey at her desk listening to this conversation. Johnny sees Bailey and takes off his hat. Look, Bailey, why don't you just get me a glass of water and throw it in my face, okay? Bailey gives him a little smile, and you can see she'd really like to. Venus is disgusted by this waste of cash. He asks Johnny if he knows how much a thousand bucks is. Who cares, man? It's just money. Johnny takes off his hat and sets it on the bookshelf. Let me tell y'all something, and I don't want you to forget this. Johnny gets up on the couch to address them. Money... And happiness and life are not the same thing. Johnny eyes Venus up and down. For example, Othello, uh, money is not life. And and life is not... uh, Johnny plops down on the couch. uh, Happiness. He's getting a little confused. Johnny looks up and sees Bailey standing next to him. She very casually pours a full cup of water right down his face. Johnny refers to Venus as Othello. We thought it had to do with the belt and tunic until we did some research. This is another example of Hugh Wilson's go smart or go home attitude about script writing. And for some reason, we get more Shakespeare from Johnny. Othello is a Shakespearean tragedy written in 1603. It's set during the Ottoman-Venetian War of the early 1570s. So, sure, you may have gotten the Shakespeare reference. What you maybe didn't get was the racial reference. Othello is specifically identified as being a Moor, even in the title of the play. Although Shakespearean scholars say Othello's ethnic origin is vague, Moor was a term used interchangeably in Shakespeare's time with African, Ethiopian, or Negro. 
Venus, it turns out, is the most authentic moor in the station. We get a shot of Les at his desk watching all the action. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Left arm, just below the elbow, all the way around. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. Johnny looks up at Bailey and tells her he was just kidding. Oh, I'm sorry. Damn. I was just doing what Nadine and the doctor would, following orders. Some Bailey jealousy rears its ugly head. Bailey returns to her desk. Venus sits next to Johnny. Now, John, you've got $24,000. $23,000. 22 and some change. Yeah. Johnny holds up his foot and points at the hem of his leather pants. You can get a tailor through room service. <laughs> we now see Herb is also in the bullpen. As Johnny says this, Herb puts a piece of paper up to his mouth and he bites it. Venus tells Johnny he's had a little fun, but it's time for some hard thinking. Johnny holds up his hand saying, no, no, no. Now, when you're rich, you don't have to think. That's why it's so much fun to be rich. Les decides to speak up here. Invest your money, Fever. Don't be an idiot. Venus tells Johnny, Les is right. Johnny brushes them off. He says he wants to show them a few of the things he has already purchased. Johnny reaches into the brown paper bag he's been carrying around with him. For example, a genuine simulated diamond Masonic ring. Huh? Huh? Walks over to Johnny. May I see that? Sure. Johnny points at Herb, telling him he was going to get him a sport jacket as a gift. But, you know, they just don't make that stuff anymore. Anti-pollution laws. Herb is holding the ring up to the light and examining it closely. No, 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 you, you can get them at a golf pro shop over in Kentucky. That's the only place you can get them from. You gotta go out of state get those coats. Johnny reaches back into the paper bag and he pulls out... A harmonica, a long one. Just like the harmonicats played. So don't tell me. Okay? He reaches back into the paper bag and pulls out... Soap that you can see through. Johnny holds a small bar of soap in each hand and puts them over his eyes. Hey, Howard, here's a bag of stuff. Make it funny. <laughs> So Johnny's see-through soap might be Pears Glycerin Soap. Pears is the oldest brand of translucent soap in the world. The first Pears soaps were sold in 1807 in London. Pears is still available today, and you don't have to be as rich as Johnny to afford a bar. A 3.5-ounce translucent face bar of Pears goes for about a buck fifty. Johnny mentioned he's got one of those long harmonicas like the Harmonicats. The Harmonicats were an American harmonica-based group founded in 1947. They used chromatic, chord, and bass harmonicas, and some of them were pretty big. Their 1947 recording of Peg o My Heart had sold over one million copies by 1950, and it went to number one on the U.S. Billboard chart. The recording engineer used a bathroom at Universal Recording Studios as an echo chamber, making Peg o My Heart the very first pop record to use artificial reverb. ¶¶ 
out more than 20 albums. The Harmonicats continued performing up until the death of founder Jerry Murad in 1996. I found some pictures of them doing different performances, and they have a crazy collection of harmonicas. I saw one that was almost as long as a guy's arm. Wow. There was another one that was like double-decker, and they've got them, you know, two and three feet long. And these I bet they have teeny huge. tiny ones, too. Yeah, probably have the little ones, too, but I saw these big ones in some of these pictures. So Venus is about to explode. He stands up and walks across the bullpen telling Johnny he's piddling away his money. You ought to invest the rest before it's all gone. <laughs> Johnny's looking through the soap <laughs> at everyone in the room. You know, John, beans are very good. <laughs> what? Les tells Johnny to invest his money in bean futures. Limas, for instance. Venus tells Les that's crazy. Crazy like a fox. Les hurries over and sits next to Johnny on the couch. He's very excited. All this talk you've been hearing about a protein shortage is really a myth. Now, I hate to say this, being as closely associated as I am with pigs, but America is going to a carbohydrate diet. Johnny looks at Venus, who is sitting on the other side of him. Yes, proteins are out, beans and your green vegetables are in. Venus looks over at Les and tells him he is on in two minutes. Les jumps up and hurries out the door to the studio hallway. And I love how Les just takes Venus's word for that. He doesn't look at a clock or a watch. He just jumps up and runs out of the room. Bailey leans over her desk and asks Johnny why he just doesn't open a savings account. Johnny shoots that idea down. Venus suggests real estate. What about Herb's condominium client? Going with the wind estates? <laughs> Don't laugh, Venus. It's nice out there. Venus turns back to Johnny. Real estate has never failed, man. I mean, the, the market's down right now. We can get a good bargain. Come on, let's get a paper. Venus gets up from the couch. Johnny stands and puts his hat on. Venus says they'd better get this money invested fast. This is your future. And you know, as level-headed as Venus is about money matters, we're kind of curious why he doesn't advise Johnny to use the money on those overdue bills. He seems to have forgotten all about that pile. They didn't go away just because Johnny got a bunch of money. You've got to actually pay them. Venus and Johnny head to the door. Herb tells them to go to Gone with the Wind. Tell them Herb sent you <laughs> and you heard it on WKRP radio. I've never owned land before, Herb. Look, you buy a condo, you don't get land. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get land. Johnny and Venus leave. Les comes back into the bullpen from the studio hallway, slamming the door. I'm not on for another hour. Herb, with his full cup of coffee, walks back over to his desk. He asks the others, why Johnny? Why can't, why can't I just get 24 grand like, like that out of the blue? Because you always have bad luck, and you always will have. Herb sneers at Les. What do you... Herb sits in his chair, which falls over to one side causing him to spill coffee all over the floor. It's like a wheel came off of one leg of his chair. Bailey and Les cover their mouths to hide their silent laughter as the screen fades to black. Soap that you can see through. <laughs> we come back to Jennifer and Andy in the lobby. There's a large grandfather clock sitting in the middle of the lobby. It looks like the chairs have been replaced with a wooden bench. Jennifer is rubbing her finger along the clock with admiration. Well, I don't understand this. I mean, I don't understand this at all. Jennifer points at the face of the clock. Well, when the little hand reaches Stop way... <laughs> Jennifer looks at Andy and tells him it's here because she bought it at an estate sale 
and she doesn't have anywhere else to store it. Well, why a grandfather clock? You asked me to redecorate the lobby, to give it stature and prestige. Andy shifts from one foot to the other. Well, yeah, but it should look like the lobby of a radio station, not the Swiss embassy. Jennifer acts insulted. I donated it. I am merely trying to help. If you would like to take over for me, please do. Perhaps you could put bumper stickers everywhere. (laughs) Oh taken a shot at Andy's bumper sticker <laughs> wall, which really had become a big topic of conversation by Im- this time. You're very impressed with that bumper sticker wall, too. I think it's a great way to decorate the office. Andy swallows, and he gets a very serious look on his face. That is my prize collection. <laughs> Andy looks Jennifer in the eyes. Are you saying that I don't have any taste? <laughs> no. But you're saying that I don't. Jennifer's face screws up and her lips begin to quiver. She goes over to her desk and puts her head down, propping it up with one hand. The tower of a woman's tears. Andy melts. You can just see it. Jennifer is diabolical. Andy, feeling terrible, walks over to Jennifer and apologizes. He tells her he's sorry. You can decorate this lobby any way you want to. You're sure? I'm sure. Andy pats Jennifer on her shoulder. Venus enters the lobby. Hey! Jennifer pops up with a smile on her face. Hi, Venus. What's new? (laughs) Venus tells them Johnny just got a condo at Gone with the Wind Estates. I told you. Diabolical. (laughs) So Art comes out of his office and walks over to the clock. Nice clock. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, That's great. Andy leaves the lobby. Venus tells Carlson Johnny just bought a condo. He wants to get everybody at the station together so they can go look at it. Venus, I'm a business executive. I don't just go running off with the gang every time one of my employees buys something new. (laughs) Jennifer jumps up from her desk saying she wants to see it. Mr. Carlson, will you water the plants and answer the phone? Sure. (laughs) So Mr. Carlson, the busy business executive, has a seat at Jennifer's desk as she leaves the lobby. Nice clock, huh? We start this scene with an outside shot of Gone with the Wind Estate condominiums. And we hear Tara's theme, Gone with the Wind, playing again. We cut to an inside shot of one of the apartments. The apartment is empty except for a few folding chairs. Every room has wall-to-wall carpet. We see Johnny's hat in one of the chairs. The doorbell rings. Surprisingly, it's not Tara's theme. Only Jennifer gets a custom doorbell. Johnny comes out from another room to answer the door. He has his long harmonica in his mouth, and he's inhaling and exhaling as he walks. So you tell me. (laughs) Johnny peeps through the peephole, then opens the door. Herb, Bailey, Andy, Venus, Les, and Jennifer all enter. They are ooing and aahing as they look around. Welcome, Wagon. (laughs) Now let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a red clay-colored polyester suit. The pants have very big bell bottoms. They reminded me of like the keep on trucking guy or some of Earth, Wind and Fire's stage apparel. These were some big bells. The jacket has epaulettes on each shoulder. Under the jacket, he's wearing a brick red shirt with large white splotches. 
The collar of his shirt is out on top of the jacket's collar. Welcome wagon. <laughs> wow, do you remember Welcome Wagon? The company was founded in 1928 by Thomas Briggs in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a for-profit organization devoted to welcoming new residents to an area. The initial business plan required hostesses to visit new homeowners after relocation. The hostesses would deliver a welcome basket filled with coupons or advertisements, even samples from local businesses. The local businesses, of course, would pay to have their items in the welcome wagon baskets. She's informed about a variety of activities in your town. She is carefully trained to provide you with valuable community services. She's a welcome wagon hostess. For more information, call Welcome Wagon. The hostess model lasted for 70 years, right up until 1998. At that time, Welcome Wagon said U.S. demographics had changed so much, no one was home to welcome the hostesses anymore. Hostesses nationwide were laid off. Welcome Wagon in Canada had split off in 1979 to become its own Canadian-owned company. They continued to offer home visits until May of 2020, when the company closed. Welcome Wagon has been sold numerous times, but it does still exist and is currently based in Coral Springs, Florida. These days, all welcoming is done through direct mail and telemarketing calls. And I think I mentioned to you, my mom did Welcome Wagon for as a, a few years as a hostess, like in the late 60s. But that was when you could go to like the Chamber of Commerce or wherever, and, and they ask, would give you addresses. Give of you ad- new yeah, people who moved has into just town. moved in, but they won't do that now. No, <laughs> Johnny asks them what they all think. Herb says it's nice. How much? <laughs> oh, Les, that's too personal a question to ask. Les then turns to Johnny. How much? Johnny tells Les, "Talk to Venus." He's my budget director. <laughs> Venus has a big smile on his face. He's happy about this. We put $15,000 down. The rest I'm holding back for taxes and incidentals. <laughs> Venus playfully hits Les on the arm. Les takes a few steps. Nice carpet. Les does this little hop and slide. Then he looks down at the carpet and then to Johnny. Three pie? Johnny shrugs his shoulders. He doesn't know. Les walks over to the stairs and points. Do these lead upstairs? Depends on which way you're going. <laughs> That's a good line. (laughs) Andy tells Johnny he really likes it. Bailey says she does, too. Johnny looks at Jennifer. Jennifer? Yes, it's very nice. And such a fashionable address. Pity Pat Lane. Yeah. (laughs) It's either that or Prissy Parkway. Jennifer asks Herb if he picked the names for this place. I wish. Les comes galloping down the stairs, and you can hear him as he's coming down the stairs. Les is like a little kid. He is. He's running from room to room. This is neat. Bailey and Andy are looking out the window. Andy tells Johnny he has some yard here. Johnny corrects Andy, telling him it's not a yard. Called a community green belt. (laughs) They call it Frankly, my dear, park. (laughs) Spelled D-E-E-R. Bailey thinks it's cute. Andy, being sarcastic, says it's adorable. 
Venus speaks up. Call it what you want, it's a good investment. Wow, you'd never know Hugh Wilson came directly to Hollywood from Atlanta, would you? Without a doubt, there is no more famous an Atlanta-based movie than Gone with the Wind, and WKRP references it liberally. As you probably guessed, both Pity Pat and Prissy are character names taken from Gone with the Wind. Aunt Sarah Jane Pity Pat Hamilton was played by Laura Hope Cruz. Pity Pat had an apartment in Atlanta. Cruz, a character actor, was recommended for the role after Billy Burke turned it down. Prissy is, of course, the name of the house servant character played by Butterfly McQueen, who had the famous Burthen Babies line. I don't know nothing about Burthen Babies. And if your name is Butterfly, why would you need a different character name? I they mean, just should have stayed Butterfly, with Butterfly. Yes. We hear a loud sound that seems to vibrate the whole apartment. They're all looking around, wondering what is that, when Herb comes into the room. Uh, I believe Les found the trash smasher. The sound stops, and Les comes into the room. (laughs) It's a huge sound. It's huge. Les asks Herb for some trash to put in the smasher. I just plum forgot trash, Les. Give him your belt. What Les found is called a trash compactor. You may have a dim memory of these things. Home trash compactors were introduced in the early 1970s. They were adapted from commercial compactors that had been in use since the 1940s. The compactor had one job, smash your trash under extreme pressure. The idea seemed logical. Trash can easily be condensed. The compactor was advertised as being able to compress a week's worth of trash into a single compactor bag. Georgie, it's time to take out the trash. Didn't we just do that yesterday? At Whirlpool, we don't think every day should be garbage day. That's why Whirlpool makes the Trash Masher Compactor. Day in and day out, it takes in the trash. And for an average-sized family, compacts a whole week's worth into one easy-to-handle bag. Georgie! My turn this week. Now, isn't that a neat idea? Wow, you only have to take the trash out once a week? Plus, it takes up less space in landfills? What a great invention, right? Well, not quite. There were several problems. The smell, for one. Up to a week's worth of stinky, rotting trash was sitting in your kitchen. Plus, each time you added to it, the condensing process would squeeze more odors into the air. Condensed meant smaller, but also heavier. Many compactors created a final block of trash weighing 30 pounds or more, and it was a block. For many customers, their square block of compactor trash didn't fit in their round trash can. Now, I grew up in a compactorless family, but you had one, right? You guys had one growing up. Yeah, I was in junior high, so we're talking like in 1971, 72. So right when they had come out, they were pretty hot, new They were pretty hot, and and mom and dad bought one. But we had to rinse cans cans and bottles and and things like that. Boxes, whatever. If there was food on it, we rinsed it in the sink before we put it into the trash compactor. And you weren't sticking in peelings or banana no, no, peels. No, not garbage. Or no garbage. Not just garbage. Just the containers. Trash. 
but rinse out those vegetable cans and things before you put them in. So you were getting around that problem, but you didn't have the stinky. Right. And and it did last about a week. We'd take that out and put it in the trash can. And how big a thing did you come up with well, after it a was, week? It was smashed down to, I don't know how many pounds Bigger it was. Bigger than a bread box? But I'd say it was probably about the size of a bread box. It was pretty cool. It was loud. How often did you set it off? Every time you put something in it, you turned it on and made it come We When packed? we first got it, we did every time we put something in. But after a while, it's like we got tired of hearing that. So we waited until it was <laughs> had a little more in it and made it worthwhile. And it's the same process as the big garbage trucks with the compressor yeah. in the back. Yeah. It's doing the just, same thing. Just keep smashing it down, smashing it down. Compactors faded as quickly as they arrived. Sales went from a peak in 1988 of 243,000 new units sold to about half that, 126,000 units in 1992. Although many of the problems with compactors still remain, you can find at least one model of compactor being offered by most appliance manufacturers. Newer versions have added enhancements like charcoal filters to get rid of the smell problem, but many of the underlying problems do remain. I do remember. Mom was very excited because they found an avocado green one to match the avocado green (laughs) stove and the avocado green refrigerator. Oh, baby, it was 1972. (laughs) Les tells Johnny he's very impressed with the place. He asks to see the pool area and the sauna. Johnny tells him it's down the back stairs and to the left. Les claps his hands and he excitedly heads toward the door. Come along, everyone. Les leaves. But no one follows him. No, they're all just kind of hanging out. Les has gone to see the pool. Everyone else is still in the apartment. Jennifer (laughs) walks up to Johnny and tells him she's thinking of moving back to her apartment. There's so much to take care of in a house. So Les comes stomping back into the room, not very happy. I said, come on. Jennifer looks at Johnny and smiles. He's such a cute little Nazi. <laughs> they all leave except for Venus. Johnny asks him to hang back as he tells the others they'll catch up. Here's a fun performer footnote about Richard Sanders. In a 1978 made for TV movie called The Gypsy Warriors, Richard Sanders did play a Nazi. The movie starred Tom Selleck and was written by a hot young writer named Stephen J. Cannell. Cannell had just gotten his first series on the air that same year, the World War II fighter pilot saga, Ba Ba Black Sheep. Johnny and Venus are looking around the apartment. Well, my friend, I hate this place. Venus looks at Johnny. Johnny tells Venus he knows he's been doing his best for him all along. Venus, I'm telling you, some people were born not to have money. Johnny tells Venus... This is not me. I'm just not your basic condomaniac. Venus says Johnny can't make payments here and rent somewhere else. Johnny tells Venus he doesn't want to live here. Condomaniac. Johnny says he went to see Wainwright over at the sales office and he told him he wanted out. Wainwright said no. Venus tells Johnny he's just gonna have to live here for a while. Yeah, man. Johnny puts his hat on takes a seat in the chair, and begins playing the blues on his Harmonicat's harmonica. I want to go home. Johnny begs Venus to talk to Wainwright, ask them to please take the condo back. Venus tells Johnny he'll try. Venus suggests calling Wainwright and having him come 
to the condo for a meeting. Venus is so nice and patient with oh, Johnny. He puts up with so much from Johnny. <laughs> there is a side swipe on the screen, and we find it's later the same day at Johnny's condo. We hear a doorbell. Johnny opens the door and invites Mr. Wainwright in. There's a woman with Mr. Wainwright. Mr. Wainwright introduces Ms. Archer. She's one of the company's top people. Ms. Archer has a pinched face and her hair is pulled back into a bun. She's wearing a long skirt with a blouse that has a bow tied up under her chin and a blue blazer. She looks like she's just eaten something she's sour. She's the church lady. Yeah. She yeah. looks like the church lady. Johnny motions to Venus. May I introduce Mr. Trapp, a top person in his own right. <laughs> Venus smiles. Johnny suggests they all sit down. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus has changed clothes to impress the condo people. He's wearing a dark red wine-colored suit, traditional cut to the coat. The material looks like a velour texture. He's wearing a brownish-colored kidskin tie with a dark gray dress shirt. In the pocket of the suit jacket is a satin maroon pocket square. He is also wearing a gold chain bracelet on his right wrist and a gold watch on his left. Venus is very vibin' here. Ms. Archer is being played by Constance Pfeiffer. I think her real name is even better than the character name. Yes, Constance Pfeiffer. Constance got her start in acting with the 1975 movie, They Only Come Out at Night. Her first series role was as Hooker on a 1975 episode of Police Woman, and Mom and Dad were so proud. With that pinched face, you know, how, <laughs> how much business did she get? Not reeling in the John. <laughs> Constance picked up single episode guest shots and TV movies through 1992. She then doesn't get another role until a single episode shot on The West Wing in 2002. That would be Constance's final appearance on TV. Mr. Wainwright is being played by Weldon Blyler as Weldon Boyce Blyler. Sometimes Weldon goes with Boyce and sometimes he doesn't. Weldon was born in Indiana in 1939. His acting career began in 1978 on an episode of Different Strokes. He picked up a total of 17 acting credits between 1978 in 1991. I don't know that I have ever heard that first name, Weldon. What would be the short nickname for that, Weld? I don't know. <laughs> Weldon. Welly. Venus hurries over to open a fourth folding chair. There's some awkwardness when Johnny sits before Ms. Archer, then he stands, then he sits again, then Mr. Wainwright comes over. Finally, they get all situated. Mr. Wainwright addresses Johnny. Mr. Caravella, I'm sorry if I didn't make myself clear this afternoon. Venus speaks for Johnny, telling Mr. Wainwright... He hoped there was room here for some discussion. Venus stands and walks behind Johnny as he speaks. You see, I feel a little guilty about this. I advise Mr. Caravella to buy here, and now I'm afraid he's a little unhappy. Venus sounds so businesslike, oh, doesn't he? Oh, he's so turned out and looking great, sounding great. Miss Archer asks if there's a problem. Well, yes. You see... Mr. Caravella's lifestyle is such that he feels somewhat out of sorts here at Gone with the Wind Estates. I think I'd be happier at 
uh, on the waterfront estates. <laughs> Did you catch it? Johnny slipped in another movie reference. On the Waterfront, the 1954 movie starring Marlon Brando about Jersey longshoremen and corrupt unions. And this is the movie Johnny quoted at the end of Explosive Affair Part 1. It could have been a contender. Mr. Wainwright leans toward Johnny and tells him he's sure Johnny will grow to love it here. Our arrangement has been consummated, Mr. Carabella. See, I feel like I've been consummated, Mrs. Archer. (laughs) In case you're curious... Consummate has two meanings. The first is to complete a business transaction. The second is to make a relationship complete by having sexual intercourse. We'll let you figure out who's using which meaning. And thanks for giving that paragraph to me. And I loved how they slipped this in on network primetime TV. (laughs) I feel like I've been consummated. Yes. So Venus puts his hand on Johnny and pulls him back, patting his shoulder. What we have here is just a little misunderstanding, but I'm sure we can work it out. As a matter of fact, uh, I think Mr. Fever here might make a cash penalty of some sort. Miss Archer is confused. She asks... Who's Fever? Venus quickly corrects himself. Uh, Miss Caravella, I mean. (laughs) Yes, uh, he'll pay a cash penalty of, let's say, one thousand dollars johnny shoots up out of his chair a thousand dollars venus puts his hands on johnny's shoulders and pushes him back down into his chair venus says he knows it's a sacrifice but it's one they're willing to make but we are not this unit is yours mr caravella yours to keep venus is losing his cool professional demeanor a bit all right let's not beat around the bush here i know how these things work the doctor gives you a thousand five. We walk. Everybody's happy. Miss Archer tells Johnny he can sell the property himself. Venus responds. We'll just have to raffle this place off. You ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah. Miss mm, Archer informs Venus they are familiar with that procedure. That's why the agreement the doctor signed specifically prohibits that type of resale. <laughs> Oh. Whoops. Venus was not aware of this. It does? It does. Miss Archer tells him. They have a certain image to maintain here at Gone with the Wind Estates or whatever the heck it is. Johnny looks at Venus and asks him for his next point. Speaking of image, he, this man, will have big parties and play loud music all night. Night after night after night. (laughs) Miss Archer responds. And we will have him, this man, arrested. Night after night. After night, we will continue to have him arrested until he learns to behave himself like a good gone with the winder. Aside from being banned in Johnny's lease, property raffles are pretty much illegal throughout the United States. Some states will allow them in specific situations, like if it's a non-for-profit getting the proceeds. But even then, the restrictions are huge. Property raffles abroad have made the news in recent years. Castles in Scotland have been sold via raffle. For a $100 ticket, you might win an entire estate. Usually the person holding the raffle is trying to pay off outstanding debt with the proceeds. Mr. Wainwright adds quite proudly, That's what we call the residents here. Gone with the winders. Good God. 
on with the winders. So Venus is out of ideas. He says he thinks this is an outrage, but then he asks Johnny if he has any ideas. Johnny tells him no, although you see a little glint in Johnny's eye. And I think it's time we started telling the truth, Venus. It is? Yes, it is. Now, Lord knows I do want to be a good gone with a winder. Uh, it's Venus here that's really unhappy. And that is his first name, Venus. Just like the goddess of love and beauty. Cross my heart, Bean. Once we move in here together, you're going to come to love her. Johnny grabs Venus's arm and leans in close to him. Just think of all the things we can do with textures. Hmm? Hmm? Remember those darling little wall hangings we saw in that shop off Decker Street? They were to die, Bean, just to die. What do you say? What do you, just loosen up. Hmm? How about it? <laughs> Johnny has his arm around Venus. He's holding Venus's other arm with his hand. Johnny is giggling at Venus a little, trying to get him to loosen up. I love how Johnny calls him Veen. Veen. <laughs> Venus is speechless. Uh, uh, <laughs> he makes a few noises, but can't seem to talk. It's that old South thing that's got him upset. You know, the slavery bugaboo. And that is just so silly. We'll blend right in here. <laughs> Slavery bugaboo made me spit coffee. Johnny takes Venus by the hand and leads him to a chair where Venus sits. We'll, we'll just go to all the parties. We'll get to know our neighbors. We'll enjoy the pool and the sauna. We will practically live in the sauna. <laughs> Ms. Archer is bristling with disgust as Johnny rubs Venus's shoulder and pulls a chair up to sit close to him. She had a physical reaction to oh. live in the sauna. You could just hear her going, Ugh. Think about it, Bean. We can take long strolls through, frankly, my dear Park. We can have Mr. Wainwright and Ms. Archer over for some of your scampi. Wouldn't that be fun? Johnny looks at Ms. Archer and Mr. Wainwright. So how about it, you two? What do you say? Let's just forget all this terrible business and just live and create and just be. Johnny gives Venus a loving look. Venus is just sitting and smiling at them. <laughs> he does that very well. He'll be all right. I'll talk to him. Miss Archer and Mr. Wainwright are very uncomfortable and they're shifting around in their chairs. They're looking at each other with side glances. This is almost as much a Howard Hessman playground as the Dr. Fever and Mr. Tide episodes were. <laughs> he is just going nuts all over the place and having so much fun. Johnny's playing an interesting game here, and that means our scriptwriter is playing a little bit of an interesting game. By 1982, gay had become a social topic. The village people had already made their mark on society. Gay was in the public consciousness, but it was by no means openly discussed or widely accepted, especially in the very conservative Midwest. Look at how Les reacted just a couple of years ago to being thought of as gay. Here we've got Johnny playing an openly gay man, which now we would recognize as fairly common. He's not doing it offensively. He may be feeding into some stereotypes, but it's by no means over the top. 
Johnny was counting on the fact that Ms. Tightbun and Mr. Sourface <laughs> would be prejudiced against a gay couple and a racially mixed gay couple at that. Well, he was right. We will practically live in the song. <laughs> We come back to the bullpen for our capper scene. Venus is sitting on the DJ's desk telling Andy, Bailey, Les, and Herb all about his and Johnny's adventure. And then he starts singing real softly. And by your touch, I found true love. (laughs) And then I swear he reached over, gave me a peck on the cheek. (laughs) I want to see those scenes too. (laughs) (laughs) Andy and Bailey are laughing. Les was not impressed at all. Yuck. Herb was not smiling either. You didn't tell them you were from KRP, did you? They're clients of mine, you know. Venus shakes his head. No, but I did tell them that I knew you very well. Venus gives Herb an air kiss. Man, I really wish there was like an hour-long version of this where we could see the rest of Johnny's scenes in there with... With Veen. With Veen, yes. (laughs) When we first started the scene... Venus was singing lyrics to the tune of Tara's theme. A quick explanation. Tara's theme is an instrumental. It's how it was written for the soundtrack. In 1954, prolific lyricist and composer Mac David wrote lyrics based on Tara's theme. He called his new song, My Own True Love. That's how you'll find it on a lot of song lists. Then, in parentheses, will be Tara's theme. Johnny Desmond recorded the song with Richard Shore's orchestra. It went to number 23 in December of 1954. My own true Venus gets credit for the performance on the WKRP soundtrack. So Andy asks Venus if they had to pay the $1,000, and Venus tells them no. We went over to the office and tore up the contract. But then Fever was completely out of control. He was Liza Minnelli this and Liza Minnelli that. <laughs> Liza this and Liza that. So Johnny comes into the bullpen. He's still wearing his leather pants and jacket and his hat. He looks at Venus. Well, there you are, you dusky devil. Stop it. And that is a great line. Johnny strikes a pose, leaning against the door. Venus tells Johnny to stop it. It's over. Go buy yourself a thousand harmonicas. Johnny walks on into the bullpen, telling Venus he blew the whole bundle. Good. You what? I uh, put it all in a little filling. Les walks towards Johnny. You are an idiot, Fever, an absolute idiot. Johnny looks at them all. I gave it all to my daughter, Les. Oh, I'm an idiot then. (laughs) Johnny walks over to Les and puts his arm around him. Oh, no, not really. Actually, Les, you're an intelligent, outspoken, and very attractive person. I like you a lot. Les turns and smiles at the others proudly. Oh, thank you. Johnny begins humming the theme from Gone with the Wind. (laughs) As he gazes into Les's eyes, he's running his fingers along Les's face. Across the room, Venus joins in with the humming. We see Les looking terrified, and (laughs) the screen fades to black. That was fun. That was such a fun episode. I love seeing Howard 
just take it. Chew the scenery. Oh. Just go crazy and have so much fun with that. It was a blast. And so many of these season four episodes have been hilarious. Lots of funny stuff in them. And season four gets maligned a lot by uh, mm-hmm. longtime fans as not being one of the better seasons. But man, I'm loving it. So And the scenes with, with Johnny and, and Venus. I mean, Venus oh. plays so well. Yes. Tim, Tim Reed and Howard Hessman, they great They play off duo. of each other so, so beautifully. That is going to do it for three days of the condo. What is up for next week, Don? Next week is Jennifer and the Will. When an elderly gentleman friend of Jennifer's dies, the man's family accuses Jennifer of stealing his fortune. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page at WKRPcast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!